welcome. This is the next in the podcast series of the history of anatomy. This is Dissectionist Theatre, Rembrandt, and the anatomy paintings of the Dutch Golden Age. I wanted to start with a couple of quotes, one from um, Denis Diderot's 18th century Voyage en Hollande, uh, which was published in uh, Paris in 1818. The Dutch are human ants. They spread over all the regions of the earth, gather up everything they find that is scarce, useful or precious, and carry it back to their storehouses. Extraordinary quote. There's another quote from Eugène Fromontaine's uh, Masters of Past Time, which was written initially in 1876, reprinted in an Andrew Boyle translation in 1913. Every Dutch painting can be recognised from the outside by several unmistakable signs. No painting is more condensed, for none encloses in so small a space so many things. No painting leads with greater certainty from the foreground to the background, from the border to the horizons. There was a general public acceptance that dissection of corpses led to better art. The same argument was used to further an advance in medicine and science, asserting that the more exposure surgeons had to dead bodies, the better they might become at treating the sick. On the face of it, both lines of reasoning seemed plausible enough, even though there was no evidence that either contention was true. Through the 16th to the 18th centuries, the exposition of the cadaver moved into the public squares. The sentence of anatomisation added at the discretion of judges to that of execution for criminals who committed a capital offence. These public displays were authorised in England and in Europe by royal assent, paving the way for the foundation of colleges and guilds of surgeons, and ultimately for the construction of bricks and mortar theatrae anatomia, which were dedicated to the dissection of bodies, and which cemented the practice of dissection as a rite of passage for medical training. A close encounter with a corpse was central to the life of all medical students, at once tangible, intimate and brutal. In the face of their dissecting performance, the more dispassionate the student or the doctor in their dismantling of a human body, the more highly they were regarded. Such is as it has been. Art maintained its connection to anatomy in two principal ways. Firstly, since great artists had already participated in dissection, particularly in an age of anatomical realism, their mission was one of verisimilitude. We have, however, already seen how this shared purpose of anatomist and artist could and often did provoke conflict. Vesalius had written of the search for truth as the critical goal of any dissection, but he was dissecting at a time when much of the body was still a terra incognita. As the finite limits of discoverable macroscopic anatomy were reached, both the verbal and the pictorial transmission of that data became more schematic and sterile. The second reason is that anatomical art was the permanent record of an ephemeral event. Like any other art, it was a snapshot of transience, but before there was any ability to preserve the whole body or any of its parts, the public dissections needed to be carried out in a few days, lest the rotting of the flesh made examination impossible. Aside from the closely written texts of the known anatomy which were not available to the public at large, or which may have even been relatively inaccessible to those students with a poor command of Latin, the artist's rendition of a public anatomization, accurate or not, was the only reminder of the power of such an event. The most iconic dissecting art is not a template of accuracy. It's not there to educate, but rather to recreate the atmosphere of dissection, and it does so as powerfully as any other genre through its generative culture, 
the surgeons and the anatomists as ably represented in their collective portraits as were the spirited companies of night watchmen, civil militias and city burghers. In northern Holland there's a collection of paintings in which the cadaver, or bits of it at least, are the principal focus. These are the glimpses of the dead body as the subject anatomicum of symbolic dissections attended by a fellowship of surgeon anatomists. These are the visual, Netherlandish record of the public anatomizations, and they secure their rituals and their practitioners into memory. The decisions for inclusion into this elite group over time were doubtless capricious and subject to compromise, but these anatomical paintings, as they have become known, signify more than a single powerful event. The loose alliance of these dozen or so works comes in no small measure through the political and economic turmoil experienced by a nation forging its religious boundaries after the Eighty Years' War. From this, over a series of accords collectively referred to as the Treaty of Westphalia, the Dutch nation emerged as the most powerful economic force on earth in a century dubbed its Golden Age, its Guten Uhr. And these group portraits capture the anatomists with their quarry, so to speak, the cadaver, and they show them engaged in their one true love of dissection. The paintings fit into the age that roughly spans that period between 1600 and 1700, when Dutch artists staked out their territorial talents, specialising in still life, landscape, historical narratives, biblical parables mythology and scenes of maritime battles. Some like Franz Hals or Peter de Hoog or Jan Steen became particularly famous during this time for their genre paintings, which epitomised the ordinary folk revelling in the genteel or the boisterous pleasures of life, and for which the art historian J.Q. van Regteren Altena had branded 17th century Dutch life to appear like Quote, one long Sunday, unquote. Ut pictora poesis, according to Horace, show poetry in a picture. A broader interpretation of the aphorism, almost an imperative to create through art the small narratives representative of past and present lives. But within these stories in the, is the chronicle of the development and progression of art itself, one may perhaps recognise this historiography of art more as an Italian story for which there's a, a better tradition, a stronger foundation and a more readily recognisable edifice. In the absence of such schools of apprenticeship, the story of Dutch art has been more one of the accomplishments of individual genius than of a particular devotion to an Albertian model of structure. The evolution of the art of both countries one formulaic and the other more idiosyncratic, could of course be spectacular or on occasion monotonously pedestrian. These great paintings that preserve the heritage of the surgeon anatomists and their slavish devotion to the study of the human cadaver are better interpreted if they are considered in the context of the economic and political changes that reflected this great age. And to set the scene, I'll spend a little time in a description of how the unification of the Dutch provinces impacted both science and anatomical art. The development of the Netherlands into a beacon of scientific and artistic learning correlates with its rise in economic prosperity as a direct result of provincial unity. The golden age, in the way we understand it, in which adorns this transformation, spanned the bulk of the 1600s, and was a period which revolutionised the mechanistic approach to science and its experimentation, as well as to anatomy and the dissection of the human body. It impacted too the genres of artistic representation in all fields of human endeavour, at a time where each of these ventures were themselves influenced by the tenets of the newly articulated and enlightened moral and political philosophies. The Golden Age would herald a new dawn, where the Dutch Republic led the world, not only in trade, but in art and scientific investigation. 
its sheer opulence and the style of its life, portrayed to the rest of the world and which others would try to emulate, led the historian Simon Sharma to declare at a time with, quote, an embarrassment of riches, unquote. And in this, the Dutch model was so successful that it became the new European model. Prior to the war between the Spanish crown fervently enforcing its harsh Catholicism through the Inquisition and the northern provinces of what is now Holland, flaunting their newfound breakaway brands of Reformation Protestantism, the strategic trading cities of Bruges and Ghent still remained controlled by their Spanish interlocutors. But the provinces were only vaguely held together under the Burgundians as fiefs of the Holy Roman Empire. With the fall of the most important port of Antwerp in 1585, the Netherlands had become divided into a north and a south and would only be unified at the end of this fight in 1648, following the Eight Years' War. Actually, several peace treaties were combined in that Treaty of Westphalia, which included separate agreements in um, uh, Osnabrück and Munster, which were designed to end the European wars of religious freedom between Spain and Holland and between Sweden and France. The establishment of the Northern Netherlands and its separation from the Southern Low Countries, which would form modern-day Belgium and the southeast, now Luxembourg, transformed the Netherlands into a relative haven of political and philosophical tolerance. It would bring a new diversity of transit with Lutherans and Calvinists from the south fleeing persecution, joined by Huguenots from France, the wealthy Sephardic Jewish families fleeing the Inquisition's forced conversions in Portugal and Spain, and for a brief time at least welcoming the English Pilgrim Fathers stopping on their way to the New World Americas. Despite these more tolerant times, the poorer Catholic community, many of whom had decided to remain in the North, were unable to join in the freedoms enjoyed by their Protestant cousins. They were excluded from the reins of financial power held in Protestant hands, although this belied somewhat of an outward impression of Protestant unity. Internally, however, Protestant factionalism remained with the austere puritanical Calvinists pitted against their more liberal counterparts, the Remonstrants. The Reformation in its fractious split of the sects of Protestantism would, however, sort itself out as a religious map. The sparring Protestants calling upon their dogmatic reserves petitioned those adherents in eastern Friesland, where the Anabaptists were preaching their more appealing brand of egalitarianism. And to this end, they enjoined the fight to distinguish themselves from the small sect of growing Mennonites and the more powerful Calvinist yoke, which was gaining strength in Flanders. Despite the discord, the newly structured cities remained centres of considerable religious tolerance and proved safe refuge for others visiting from England and France to express their philosophical opinions without fear of retribution or imprisonment. The philosophers Thomas Hobbes and John Locke both at times sought refuge there, finding the publication of their books far easier than in England, and the French philosopher René Descartes, 1596-1650, made Holland his home between 1628 and 1649. Hobbes actually published his combined works in Holland, and Locke formulated his social contract there in the late 1680s, when most of the British publishing establishment considered it pretty godless. Uh, Russell has argued, or Bertrand Russell has argued, that Baruch Spinoza, who was born in Amsterdam, might never have been able to have been published anywhere else. In science, Amsterdam and Leiden became must-see university stops on any grand European tour that was part of the polished de rigueur education of young British, French or German aristocrats whose fathers had sufficient money and connections. Itineraries which incorporated the finest European collections would also have included a stopover to the dissecting rooms in the hope of seeing an anatomisation of a recently executed criminal and an opportunity to meet one of the reputable grimy anatomists engaged in splitting up a cadaver in public. These cities were brimming with 
medical men making new discoveries and reorganising the anatomical taxonomy of the human body. Their names would have been as familiar as the notable astronomers and chemists, and certainly some of the contemporary philosophers who themselves might have stopped by to witness or even take part in a dissection. The day might have been rounded off with a visit to the medicinal section of the botanical gardens, the Hortus, perhaps the city observatory, or the Wunderkammer, the chamber of wonders of one of the most prominent anatomists or apothecaries or clerics. At any of these places, there would have been lectures to attend, and often with rowdy and spirited debate. Perhaps after the dissection, there would have been an opportunity to have a meal, listen to some music and discuss a little theology. Each of the draw cards for any of these marvellous days would have competed for the visitor's time, with Leiden boasting a rather cerebral faculty in the 18th century, which included Europe's foremost physician, Hermann Berhave, 1668-1738, and the anatomist surgeon, Gewert Bedlou. Amsterdam had the renowned embalmer, Friedrich Reich. Berhave was busy developing his clinical method of patient examination that would become the continental standard. The short-tempered Bedlou was seemingly in competition and argument with virtually all of his colleagues, and he'd just published his magnum opus, the 1685 Anatomia Humanicorporis, whilst at the same time penning many of the libretti for the local opera house. Against him was Reich, a man who was the praelector Anatomia in Amsterdam for nearly 60 years, and who'd become famous for his secret tissue embalming formula and his treatment of cadavers. The praelector was an elected position somewhat akin to a city coroner, and he was expected to conduct one public dissection a year, although most, with an eye on other public or political objectives within the city, would perform anatomizations mostly on executed criminals fairly infrequently. One of the praelectors, Nicholas Tulp, 1593-1674, who was praelector between 1628 and 1653, for example, performed uh, 11 public examinations during his tenure. Reich uh, had the reputation as the finest preservationist in Europe, and he was able to keep bodies in pristine condition almost indefinitely. He was also a friend, or a personal friend, of Sir Isaac Newton, and these sorts of considerations factored into the career decisions of the young anatomists working in each particular environment, much as it would do today in the choice by any surgeon in training to visit certain centres of excellence. By contrast, a little further south, the city of Delft was a different sort of magnet, boasting the dynamic researcher Renier de Graaf, 1641-1673, who was preoccupied with dissecting the anatomy of the female reproductive system and was busy describing the physiology of ovarian follicle development. Aside from him, there was the inventor of the new microscope, Antony van Leeuwenhoek, 1632-1723, who had just published in the Journal of the Royal Society, which was called The Philosophical Transactions, about the microscopic appearance of bacteria. Under the urgings of Henry Oldenburg, the secretary of the society, Van Leeuwenhoek had even collected a post-coital sample of his own semen for immediate microscopic analysis, describing for the first time the appearance of highly motile animalcules, which he called the spermatozoa. Van Leeuwenhoek actually described in a November 1677 letter to the Royal Society, which was called um, Denatus et Semine Genital Animalcules, how unpleasant he found the business of collection of semen and the need for its speedy retrieval after intercourse. Uncertain if the presence of spermatozoa was normal or a sign of infestation, he compared his own semen with a sample provided by one of his students taken from a man with gonorrhea. And uh, Van Leeuwenhoek was equally uncertain about the propriety of publication, and he invited Oldenburg to destroy the letter if he found the material too scandalous to print. Oldenburg actually um, had such an affection for uh, Van Leeuwenhoek that he learnt Dutch in order to translate all of his letters for 
philosophical transactions. One can only imagine the sense of awe that would have overwhelmed the comparatively uneducated and impressionable mind suddenly and contemporaneously exposed to the most contentious philosophers, the greatest local artists and the most flamboyant and daring anatomists. The dissecting rooms would have been filled with budding painters and sculptors freshly arrived from their academics and eager to apply the theory of what they had learned from their anatomy class by lecturers who were now focused towards their surgical students with a wholly different style and approach. The faculties more readily bled into each other's disciplines in a way that is absent today, the orators moving somewhat seamlessly between the morgue and the studio. This combination of interests necessitated an absorption of basic Latin or even a working fluency in ancient Greek, young surgeons in training before their surgical apprenticeship on occasion, writing their formal dissertation on some aspect of animal or insect anatomy. That was common. For example, Jan Schwammerdam, 1637-1680, completed medicine in Leiden in 1661, but wrote his thesis on insects, the 1669 Historia Insectorum Generalis, um, the general history of insects or general treatise on the little bloodless animals. The physician Marcello Manpighi, 1628-1694, who completed medicine in 1653, wrote an influential book on the bombic silkworm in 1669. Most academic surgeons spent a large part of their time dissecting exotic animals that had been brought back from explorations. John Hunter, for example, received his animal specimens from the animal handler at the Tower of London and his exotic plants from Sir Joseph Banks, who had returned as the naturalist attached to the Endeavour voyage of Captain James Cook. William Harvey also publicly dissected all manner of animals in his home, including crocodiles, emus and ostriches, vivisecting, quote, frogs, toads and a number of other animals, unquote, to become someone who, in his own words, had, quote, arrived to a great proficiency in cat and dog cutting. So this was the normal practice. But the anatomists didn't live in a vacuum, and as they gained a public respectability, they did so on the background of a totally transformed Dutch economy. This economic boom is worth a brief consideration as it defines the social condition of Dutch prosperity which allowed the anatomists to gain a status similar to the burghers and the cavaliers who were commissioning their group portraits for posterity. The political devolution of the Eighty Years' War had enforced some rudimentary independence onto the northernmost low countries, bringing with it totally novel financial institutions which would thrust the Netherlands forward as the largest economy in Europe. It transformed the nation from one whose rather insular survival beforehand had been more simply based upon the trade of English and Spanish wool, the local herring fisheries and the movement of immigrant labourers from Brabant and Flanders. These movements had made some of its cities the most populous in Europe, but this was not a portent for what was to come. The sheer inventiveness in um, what some have labelled the first modern economy spawned the Dutch East India Company in 1602, what was called the Verenigte Oostindische Company, or simply the VOC, supporting the riskier adventures in exploration on the other side of the world. It had brought staggering quantities of spices from the Caribbean and Batavia, pepper from India and porcelains from the Far East, while transporting the grape harvests of France, grain stores from the Baltics and the whale products from the Svalbard. The novelty of these institutions was simply astonishing for countries up until that time engaged in the hard grind of local agricultural produce and limited trade. The VOC created, in effect, the first world multinational corporation. It devised the stock market and the national banks with tentacles so far reaching that it served to deliver the audacious style of Dutch learning and teaching methodology to the closed societies of Japan and China. 
So with its spread did the independence and power of the VOC grow, possessing the autonomy to wage its own wars, to mint its own money, to broker international treaties and to establish independent colonial settlements. Dutch traders from the larger cities joined with smaller regions, including Alkmaar, Delft and Dordrecht, controlling almost half of the European trade share and extending their reach from the Indonesian archipelago across Japan and to the North American continent, where the Netherlands was forced to cede to the British its hold on New Amsterdam in a territorial exchange for Suriname and to settle the Dutch-Anglo Wars in the 1667 Treaty of Breda. The invention of the sawmill saw the development of great Dutch maritime commissions to feed its seafaring passion and to explore new territories and markets, sending its whaling ships off the Levant and conquering southern Africa and those dotted islands in the Caribbean yet unclaimed by the British and the French. And it even found time through its spin-off, the Dutch West India Company, to commandeer a large portion of the West African slave trade, moving to the Caribbean and the Americas. All of this would be powered by an age of invention and land reclamation that helped the Dutch economy achieve the highest standard of living in Europe by the middle of the 17th century. All these benefits were accrued for a landed gentry revelling in a milieu of unregulated property rights who were free to move and travel with their binding contracts. The opportunities for diversification within their labour force permitted up to one-third to move out of agriculture and into the industrial sector, and a further balance to engage directly in commerce and the service industries. And this deregulated diversification saw the smaller towns establishing specialty markets which fed the larger ports in an equilibrium of interdependence. With the growth of the textile industry, many cities became centres of niche trades, such as Leiden, which specialised in wools and cloth manufacture, Harlem, which became famous for its linens, and Amsterdam, renowned for its silks. The growth of papermaking, sugar refining, brewing, ceramics, brickworks, pottery and clay pipe making, and those trades ancillary to the textile industry like flax and rape oils, all made their contributions to the domestic market. So too did book printing in an area wholly tolerant of the novelties of social philosophies, that would be the forerunners of an egalitarian age and which made the Netherlands the preeminent place in Europe to ensure academic publication. But with success came decline. The unbridled accomplishments of the VOC would stimulate the English to emulation, forming a copycat competitive economy supported by a newly structured parliamentary experiment at Westminster that would ultimately suborn the municipalities of Antwerp, Amsterdam, Brabant and the Flanders. There was an inevitable economic decline, leaving Holland fatally stricken by an intractable public debt in her quest for world domination. By the early 1700s, the Dutch had simply overextended themselves, and racked with corruption and overinvestment, they were unable to recover. After this period, the weakening of the economy was hastened with governmental restructuring following the costly Dutch-Anglo wars. Other countries, borrowing from the Dutch style, built their own ships and copied Dutch trading practices, creating a more competitive market and eventually gaining financial advantage when Dutch venture capital saw fit to support flailing economies or to bankroll increasingly risky international adventures. The end of the economic experiment that spawned new financial institutions only served to drag the Netherlands back to a point of pecuniary weakness. Despite these ultimate woes, there was much in the midst of the golden age that could be enjoyed. An appreciation of this rise and decline helps to define the changing temperament of Netherlandish art and the social and financial milieu in which the commissions of anatomical paintings were generated. All of this occurred whilst Dutch painting in general underwent its own evolution, trading a more traditional Baroque flamboyance which glorified scenes from antiquity or biblical parables into a steadier, more modern version of everyday life. 
The changing fortunes of the middle class permitted a newfound opulence, although there was a certain sameness and interchangeability between some of the group portraits that had invited visitors like the diarist Horace Walpole to write in 1780 that, quote, they invite laughter to divert itself with the nastiest indelicacy of bores, unquote. Joshua Reynolds, too, was withering in his criticisms of this sort of art, complaining that some of the Dutch artists, like Johannes Vermeer, Franz Hals and Jan Steen in particular, had, quote, failed to finish their works, that they lacked a, a required patience, and that without a formal Renaissance training that their talents could have been better, uh, could have been put to better use, unquote. Despite the exhortations by art critics like Karl van Mander, to travel and learn their craft overseas, particularly in Italy, many painters who developed an independent fame would establish their own styles, not heeding any need to explore the artistic product either of the ancients or of the Renaissance. The new Dutch painting portraying ordinary people engaged in ordinary things permitted many painters to remain in locus without any fear or penalty. Artists who'd become famous in one style suddenly found a need to master another. Rembrandt, moving with the commercial tide from landscapes and historical paintings to portraiture. Despite the booming times, the art world was highly competitive. For the artists themselves, it was a fragile and capricious market. The cost of paintings fell precipitously, placing their commissioning and acquisition well within reach of many outside the aristocratic elite. Rembrandt himself, like his compatriots Hals and Jan de Bray, fell into bankruptcy. Some painters would actually uh, become the very model of what we would call the peintre maudit, the cursed painters, like Rembrandt's contemporary Thomas de Keyser, whose portrait commissions dried up, forcing him to run a basalt business between 1640 and 1654, Delft's Jan Vermeer was forced to move in with his mother-in-law after being compelled by poor finances to sell his house. The genre and history painter Jan Steen, whose father was a brewer in Leiden, abandoned painting between 1654 and 1657 so that he could manage a brewery of his own in Delft. And uncertain of his financial security, When he returned to painting, he still supplemented his income up until about 1670 as the landlord of a tavern. Even the great portraitist Franz Hals had petitioned the government for financial support to heat his house, and the genre painter Peter de Hoog, whose precise images of the interior of houses had inspired Vermeer, was so racked with money problems that he was driven to insanity and was committed to an asylum. So... It was a very unusual and competitive art environment. Although in Rembrandt's case he shared the same ground as other artists for his own insolvency, part of his predicament was unique to his circumstances, his profligate and even scandalous lifestyle repeatedly landing him in trouble with creditors. Rembrandt had to accept that the style and popularity of commissioned work was changing. No one wanted pictures anymore, that had a heavy emphasis on private opulence. The most popular painting celebrated a public bawdy sexual energy, but even these genre images were not universally admired. Borrowing a derogatory term used to describe the grotesque imagery peppering Byzantine manuscripts, the English critics had dubbed much of the simple Netherlands scenes of revelling peasants and the hordes of drunks brothel-goers and all-round merrymakers as complete drollery. But drolleries or no, it was a style that suited the surgeons perfectly well, and they soon commissioned pictures of themselves and their contemporaries in fellowship engaged in formal anatomy lessons. It was also a way of hailing the new guild of surgeons, which had only recently broken away from the skate and clog makers, just as in England the surgeons had left behind their compatriot barbers. In England, the barbers would change dressings, cauterise wounds and perform some bloodletting, 
barbers and surgeons were the only ones who participated in the lowly procedures where blood could actually be spilled, most notably bloodletting and the pulling of teeth. And it's believed, actually, that the origins of this arrangement occurred after the Council of Tours in 1163 with the decree of Declesia de Borit a Sanguina, releasing the clergy from such practices that involved blood. In the Netherlands, the surgeons did not break with the slipper and clog makers until 1552. And by 1597, there was an examination structure for the guild with bylaws ensuring wardens as examiners, this sort of thing. Pride of place with the power to conduct a single anatomy dissection per year, as I've said, was the praelector anatomia, an elected official who could only come from the ranks of doctors trained in medicine and who received permission to teach aspiring surgeons their anatomy. There was with appointment an expectation that the praelector should lecture fortnightly on a variety of subjects which spanned the gamut of anatomy, zoology and surgery, and that he must perform one anatomy lesson per year, conducted over several days, which dissected the complete body and which displayed its structural secrets. Even though anatomy was taught to surgeons by physicians and many surgeons performed few operative procedures, the Guild of Surgeons had established complex rules of examination and each position of its annually appointed wardens and board members was highly sought after, commanding the respect of a commissioned portrait with the desired brief to emphasise the praelector in his teaching role. Like any privileged post offering prestige and perks, such appointments would, however, ultimately succumb to nepotism and corruption. Actually, in Amsterdam, the Guild was particularly racked by nepotism and misappropriation of fees stolen from monies which were earmarked as pension funds for the widows of fellows or which were levied as bribes charged to candidates sitting examinations. In frustration in 1675, 15 of the Guild brothers lodged a formal complaint against the entire Board of Governors and the matter was referred to the Burgomasters for immediate action with the appointment of a special investigator, the surgeon Andreas Berkelmann. Although a new board was appointed, the changes instituted were relatively minor. What would you expect if a surgeon was supposed to be investigating um, other surgeons? Uh, the principal recommendations that they made after this was a capping of exorbitant prices for surgical procedures and a limit on monies which could be used on food, drinks and banqueting. Bit of a waste of time, that. The scandal actually became so burdensome that the Amsterdam Surgical Fellowship was actually not recognised or accredited for a while in any other part of the country, including Leiden, which was only 25 miles uh, south. Before the surgeons and their beloved dissections could be captured in oils for posterity, they first needed to establish a secure dissecting hall. With Amsterdam changing from a Catholic to a Protestant majority, this actually proved more difficult than at first it might have seemed. The first human cadaver dissection in Amsterdam was performed in 1550 in a makeshift dissecting room at the St Ursula convent, which became the seat of the guild. The first dissection actually was performed on a thief in 1550 whose embalmed skin was openly displayed in the guild hall. The privilege of dissection was granted to the guild by 1555 and the anatomists commonly linked their teaching schedule to the trial dates of the court so as to take advantage of the possibility of obtaining a cadaver immediately after a hanging. And that continued until the former Dutch Republic was absorbed into the French Empire after which in 1811 the Dutch Criminal Code was replaced by the Napoleonic Code Penal. At any rate, after this first dissection at St Ursula Convent in 1550, that became the seat of the Guild. By March the 13th of that year, permission was granted by King Philip II of Spain to conduct an annual public dissection there. By 1578, the surgeons had moved to a converted room above the chapel of the former convent of St Margaret, 
to be fitted up as the new slaughterhouse, its so-called new Kleine Vlieschal, where, with some irony, dissections actually took place on the first floor above the main butcher's hall meat market. In the founding organisation, the officers, the so-called Overlieden, were supported by Martin Janssen Koster, who became the first prelector and who was aided by an official examination master, a Protmeister. By 1619, the guild had moved to the Weyhouse, the Devagesant Antoniusport, but between 1639 to 1691, their members exclusively used the old Blischhal for their dissections. They were then moved to a new specially designed amphitheatre, a dedicated Theatrum Anatomia, in the main middle tower of the Waghaus, where on the first floor a guild room was built for meetings and which would be used to display the great paintings, which I'll talk about shortly. The seating and standing room in the theatre was regimented and followed the Paduan style, with a central dissecting table and rising close-knit tiers of observation points, so that the highest rungs were never more than about 30 feet from the central dissecting action. The first row was reserved for members of the Collegium Medicum, as well as doctors over 50 years of age, with the next two rows allocated to the young doctors, officers of the Guild and older surgeons. The two rows after that housed the remaining surgeons, and the highest, the last two rows, the viewing public. Dissection etiquette varied widely. In Amsterdam, banqueting usually took place afterwards with music performed by an accompanying local orchestra. Since by comparison in England there were no formal purpose-built dissecting rooms available, such formalities were not observed there. The surgeon William Cheseldon, 1688-1752, who later became the first president of the newly formed Company of Surgeons in 1745, had taken to teaching anatomy at his home because of these arrangements, frequently dissecting bodies on his dinner table, with body parts strewn among the upper uh, the supper dishes. For this practice, he was severely rebu- rebuked by the company of barber surgeons, but by 1715, this became his principal reasoning for advocating that the barbers actually split from the surgeons altogether. The Waghaus that I mentioned in Amsterdam, by the way, is now a trendy restaurant in the heart of the city, but you can still see the old entrance to the dissecting hall. The barber surgeons were built a purposeful anatomic theatre which was designed actually by Inigo Jones and completed by John Webb in 1653. That theatre was destroyed in the Great Fire of London in 1666. Um, The barbers and surgeons split in 1745 to form the new company of surgeons established next door to the Newgate Jail. In the Netherlands, however, from the 1660s onward, doctors of medicine were generally able to obtain privileges to conduct dissections at their houses. So there were these various differences between English and Dutch styles. Dissections performed by the prelector were advertised events attended by the paying public and on occasion graced by the royal personage. They were noisy, sometimes riotous with visitors competing for ringside seats and standing room and where the peasants might have had a fleeting opportunity to rub shoulders with the aristocracy. Jostling for position, all would have entered through a small door in one of the towers of that bark house that I've mentioned, inside painted with a skeleton, the artist Gerard de Lares, whom we've met before, a pupil, perhaps the favourite pupil of uh, Rembrandt, had inscribed the Reminder inside the door, hook tendimus omnes, we're all headed for this, for those waiting in line to witness the performances inside. And the dissecting activity of each prelector was dutifully recorded in the archives of the anatomy book, and the records were kept by the Guild of Surgeons and tightly overseen by appointed governmental inspectors and even by the monarch himself. By the turn of the 17th century, the surgeons had secured their hard-won social place. 
They'd lobbied effectively for their prolectors to teach anatomy in the public halls and would honour the sanctity and sobriety of the moment in oils to reflect the reverence with which they held their masters. In this enterprise, however, we must first define what paintings we intend to examine. Within the catalogue of the anatomy lesson pictures, there's also a further artifice in defining a theme which serves as a visual testament to the importance of dissection and to its formal tutorship. But we cannot regard all of these paintings as equivalent, and our task is the record of public dissections, where there is in the picture at least a cadaver, or some part of it, including a skeleton, as a principal subject anatomicum, and where there's an allusion either to dissection itself or to the teaching of anatomy to any company of fellows. That is what I mean by an anatomy lesson painting. No doubt there are more of these types of artworks which could be included in this pantheon, perhaps secreted away in private collections. There are many pictures, for example, with skulls placed leisurely on the tables of fashionable collegiate drawing rooms or of them securely front and centre in vanitous themes. There are even more of dancing skeletons or strewn ossuaries inserted into group portraits as mementos mori of death's levelling power that comes to all, no matter their station. These latter, more moralistic images reminding us of a life well lived are not our concern. Each designated painting is configured in the context of the age, but more than this, each provides an individual insight into the character of its central protagonists and of the fortunes and preeminence of the artists involved. In short, each of these paintings has a unique history. Although reference to the great heritage of the Greek and Roman men of science and medicine received some attention in the earlier paintings we shall examine, these themes would become subordinate to the process of dissection itself and the power to enthrall of the real hero in the painting, the cadaver. We may think of the Netherlandish group portrait much like any digital image we take today at the end of a medical or surgical congress, each one of us with a hand on the other's shoulders and captured together in the rarefied atmosphere of our fraternities. Like these photographic images of today, each of us jockeys for position of pride of place amongst the fellows that in some soft-spoken measure denotes our own position on the surgical food chain. So it was no different in 17th century Holland with imagery designed to show the prowess and the respect in which the prelector was held and to regiment his subordinates and assistants in some form of hierarchy. It reflected, too, the cost for these spectacular paintings which would be shared by the subjects whose seniority, importance and financial contribution often governed how accurately they were even drawn in the picture. In some of these earlier anatomy lesson paintings, the anatomy itself is almost implied. Here, although some of these paintings have been the subject of great debate for their anatomical specifics, the accuracy and even the detail, I think, is subordinate to the conceptual image. Perhaps there's been far more anatomical focus than is necessary in paintings less intended to instruct and more symbolically executed for their propensity to shock contemporary audiences. In other paintings with their open wounds displayed, there's no real contract to show anything with any degree of either clarity or accuracy. These merely showcase amorphous masses of flesh that represent the internal organs, but not their detail. They're there for the masses, and the point about their um, regularity or their amorphous nature is quite deliberate. This type of painting is a generic chronicle of what was done by the great anatomists and shouldn't be thought of as any true representation of what, through dissection, they had actually discovered. The majority of the collection of paintings of the Amsterdam Surgeons Guild I'll examine are now housed in the Amsterdam Museum, with the exception of Rembrandt's Anatomy Lesson of Dr. Taub, which is in the Moritzhuis in The Hague. These paintings actually were brought together in 1998 as a special exhibition at the Moritz Huss, following the latest attempt to restore the Tulp painting. I have, for example, um, 
excluded any southern parallels in the description, such as that by Delft's Cornelius Demand, the anatomy lesson of Dr. Cornelius Gravesend of 1681 as an example, which includes the image of Antony van Leeuwenhoek alongside the principal dissector. And I've also omitted any consideration of Christian Korvishoff's The Anatomical Lesson of Dr. Zacchaeus de Jaeger of 1640, or The Anatomy Lesson of Dr. Johannes van Beiten of 1648 in Antwerp, which are attributed either to Hubrecht Sporksman or Franz Dennis. So there might be some who want to hear about other particular paintings, uh, but these are more in the southern um, collection rather than the northern one of which we'll speak in the next podcast. This podcast has really been just designed to set up the economic and general circumstances of uh, Holland uh, that allowed these paintings to appear. So in the next um, uh, area, we'll begin our analysis, or the next podcast rather, we'll begin our analysis of these anatomical paintings. Thank you.